there was a call for help, but it didn't come from government level. It came from an admiral within the Russian fleet to an admiral in the British Navy. This is a podcast for the infinitely curious, where we share stories, invite others to share stories, and sometimes just talk for the hell of it. So, take a few minutes out of your busy day, sit back and join our host, Steve Windus, batting the breeze. School for me was a chore, which made life slightly difficult later on. I loved the ocean. I think as many people of my generation, I grew up watching Jacques Cousteau, David Attenborough, and it was those sort of documentaries that just started my love of the ocean. This is Mark Taylor. His is a story of an infatuation with the ocean which has taken him on an incredible life journey to witness human nature and the natural world at its very best and its very worst. Uh, You could find me annoying the local dive shop from about 10 years old, trying to convince them to take me diving, which eventually they did. That was the start of it. I moved to Lulworth Cove in Dorset, and pretty much every weekend, rain shine summer winter you could find me bobbing around the rocks and to me it just opened up a whole new world it was a natural progression for mark to join the navy as it turned out long before he could enjoy those underwater marvels of nature he had to train with explosive ordnance to you and me that's bomb disposal yes you are going to be trained as a highly skilled diver but the job there is to dispose of mines while you're underwater. So that changed things. And obviously, it was a very exciting career. I did 14 years. I wasn't too bad because I'm still here. (laughs) And managed to travel all over the world, diving, doing land-based and subsea mine and bomb disposal. I was expecting to talk a little more David Attenborough than improvised explosive devices. But as it turns out, it's rather interesting. The UK is split into three areas. There's two teams in each unit. One is doing UXB, which is unexploded bombs, which is the historical bombs that wash up on beaches. And then you also do IED, which is the terrorist type of bombs, which is all surface stuff. So having joined the Navy thinking I was going to be Jack Cousteau, I was screaming around the country with blue lights going, blowing up used munitions and finding terrorist bombs and and disposing of those. It was slightly unnerving to be made aware that we have teams around the country continuously deployed in terrorist bomb disposal activity. You'd have to be from your phone going to being on the road within 10 minutes, so you basically lived in the unit for a week at a time, and then you'd get called wherever to do that sort of thing you probably get one or two call outs a week many of them are hoaxes or false alarms but there are still legitimate threats out there 
which the guys still now today are, are out dealing with. So give me an example of a typical call-out. An example was uh, a hotel in Plymouth. There was a bomb threat made. There were some bags in reception that had been dropped off. The procedure is to try and gain access remotely. So we, we had all the robots where we could drive them in with cameras and they have weapons on and you can go and inspect. Now, they're good to a point, but sometimes you can't gain access with those. So you suit up, you carry a a weapon under your arm and helmet on, and you'd either go in and x-ray them, see what's in there so that you're not damaging goods for no reason. But if it was a legitimate threat and there's a time scale on it, you would basically just vaporize whatever that was and then go back in, move on, and clear the areas. A little bit naughty, but we'd go in, cause chaos very often, pack up, wipe our hands, and leave it for the police to sort out. Uh, Obviously quite frustrating when it's a, a hoax and you've made a bit of a mess. And in this particular case? There was a legitimate threat, and we went in, we fired two weapons into bags. We absolutely destroyed the uh, reception. One wall was all mirrors, they'd all gone. All the computers behind the reception were smashed. There was toothpaste and shoe polish off all the walls, (laughs) and it turns out it was a hoax. Half an hour after we left, the people came to pick up their bags, so... It does happen, but it's when you've got a legitimate threat like that and it's being called in, it has to be dealt with and you're trying to keep the general public safe and you have to act on the intelligence you've got. So sometimes there's mistakes. Okay, that's the terrorist threat sorted. So let's talk about land-based unexploded bombs. Very often we'd blue light to North Wales or Liverpool, all the way from Plymouth to go and dispose of munitions on beaches and things like that. It's still so busy. There was so much munitions dropped or fired during the wars. And there are also many ranges around the UK that they use to test weapons, that it is constant. Mines and bombs washing up on a daily basis. Fishermen trawling up different weapons and things. So... Yeah, it's it's a busy, busy job. We're talking World War Two. Yes, mainly World War Two. Any World War One? Very occasionally, I did an exchange once over to Belgium, where one of the fronts were. It was a front during World War One and World War Two. It's quite a long time ago, but they were still digging up a ton of explosives a day. Many people who joined the navy or army and get into bomb disposal, when they retire from the forces, they'll go out and they'll work for humanitarian groups and they just fly all over the world going to ex-conflict zones and just clearing up. Kids will be out playing in fields and find landmines and, yeah, it's a huge, huge problem. And what about UXBs in the water? Everybody pictures a mine as this round thing with horns on. Nowadays, there's so many variants of these mines. There's ones that look like torpedoes, and they'll actually move around the seabed. So they'll listen to ships, and they'll know the signature of certain ships. So if they hear a mine hunter coming, they'll move out the way. 
let the mine hunter come through and they'll move back into the area. So it's all autonomous. When you're a diver and you're trying to deal with those, your equipment is very, very state-of-the-art. It has to be non-magnetic because some of the mines are set off by magnetics. It has to be completely silent. So you're rebreathing your own gas. You're breathing a helium-oxygen mix because you, at times you're going deep. And as you go down, there's certain protocols that you adhere to so that you uh, do not disturb what's going on. And then depending on what you find, you'll either put a counter charge next to it to get rid of it, or if it's something new that they want to uh, look at and get the intelligence from, there's certain set procedures to disarm or lift to the surface. And how do you bring a live mine to the surface safely? So a lot of these mines, if you pull them up to the surface, they'll just detonate because they know they're getting tampered with. But they have a um, certain threshold in them so that they can compensate for the tide going up and down. So small pressure changes. So you basically have a system that lifts it a tiny bit, drops it, lifts it. And it may take one or two days to bring it to the surface, but that system will automatically bring it to the surface without the mine realizing that it's being dragged to the surface. There's another type of water-based bomb disposal too. It's known as VSW, short for Very Shallow Water. So you'd fly all over the world to different conflict sites and you would go in to survey beaches without anybody knowing you were there. So you'd get dropped off by aeroplane, submarine. You'd go in, you'd survey the beaches to see if they were suitable for landing craft and an amphibious assault and you'd also make sure that there weren't any munitions there or if there were deal with them discreetly for his last three years in the navy mark was attached to the uk submarine rescue team i asked what that comprised it was a standby system where a small submersible could lock onto a big military submarine if it was having issues and couldn't get back to the surface and we could transfer 14 to 16 people out at a time and my role there initially was to be a chamber operator in the back of this small submersible to open hatches and get the people out and then transfer them into the big chambers and the people will transfer under pressure remaining at pressure you can shut the hatches again and then relaunch and keep going depending on the class of the submarine military submarines i guess with about 15 people on and there's large submarines within excess of 150 people on when you're talking 14 to 16 people at a time multiple journeys and depending on the conditions down there it can take quite a long time as it turns out the british are pretty good at this the old submersibles have given way to what they call free swimming vehicles Small submersibles specifically designed for rescue. There's two companies in the world that produce these. One's in Glasgow and the other one's in Yorkshire. And so for that sort of vehicle, they are cutting edge and they're selling these vehicles all over the world. We'd go and exercise with different nations and you'd practice sort of thinking that you'll never be called, but you were their insurance, which was good for those guys to know that we existed well on the 12th of august 2000 
they did get called. Things got very real. The Kursk, a nuclear-powered Russian submarine, reputedly unsinkable, sank in an accident during exercise in the Barents Sea. I got a, a call recalling me immediately. Within several hours, we were mobilizing all the equipment, putting it into Antonov aircraft. All of the rescue equipment needed to be air transportable because you could be called anywhere in the world. So we mobilized our equipment. We ended up flying out of Presswick uh, in Scotland. And as we were heading towards northern Russia, even though we were in Russian aircraft, at the last moment, we were denied Russian airspace. It had got to government level, and they got very paranoid that we were there to do other things rather than humanitarian aid. And so we got diverted back into Norway. 118 men helpless underwater, a rescue team within moments of reaching the scene with all the equipment and expertise to attempt a rescue, and they were turned back. Time for plan B. We managed to find another ship that we dragged from the North Sea. All the training we've done over the years, you know, you bring a ship in, you build the big A-frame, which is a crane, you put the cradle on, you put the sub on, you put all the chambers on. To see it happen at full speed in real life, it was amazing. We must have had 50 welders on the back deck of the ship. Everything needs to be inspected, classed. So that's all going on at the same time. The ship, the Norman Pioneer, the rescue submarine, the LR5, and the rescue team were ready and set sail for the Kursk. But sea journeys are slow, and by the time they arrived, it was seven days after the initial accident. On arrival, there was another problem. When we got there, we were met by the Russian fleet in the Barents Sea, who, uh, in no uncertain terms, told us to keep out the way. There were lots of heated discussions, and despite multiple requests to give it a go, we were never allowed to go in. We know that when we arrived, based on some of the letters that they found in the curse, that people were still alive. So, so frustrating. All 118 men on the Kursk perished. It's difficult to find any positives in a situation like this. But after the event, Mark's team put on a major exercise in Norway to demonstrate the capability that they were so upsettingly denied from deploying for the crew of the Kursk. We invited some of the Russian admirals and commanders to this exercise, and we put on a simulation almost identical to the Kursk with a Norwegian submarine sat on the seabed, and we vented, we locked on. The Russians in the back were very stiff-lipped and looking at us like we didn't know what we were doing. And within seven minutes, at exactly the same depth, which was about 120 metres, we were locked on and opening hatches. There was a silence. The Russian admirals and commanders were contemplating the enormity of their recent actions and decisions in the Barents Sea. 
two or three of these guys had completely broken down. They realized that that's what we did. We weren't there to spy. We weren't there to gain intelligence. And they'd obviously lost some very close friends, which could have been avoided. The Kursk disaster changed the course of global submarine rescue. Many nations realized that they had no rescue capability for submarines. And in this day and age, the media, if you lose a submarine with its whole crew, you're going to get crucified. And so the company in Scotland started to get orders globally for submarine rescue vehicles. The experience of the Kursk still lives with Mark some 23 years later. One final point that we didn't mention. Once all hope for the Kursk submariners had been lost, Mark's team were finally allowed onto the site. We had a small service on the back of the ship. I guess there were 30 people. The Russians allowed us to sail over the site. We knew at that point there were no lives. They'd actually opened the hatch and the the Kursk was flooded. And we lay a reef over the site. All of us had tears. It was hugely emotional and sad because we never got the opportunity to try. If you've enjoyed batting the breeze with us, please share the podcast with a friend and perhaps leave a review to help new listeners find our show. Check out show notes and other great stories at battingthebreeze.com. By the way, if you have stories that you think would be informative, amusing or thought-provoking, emotionally stirring, or perhaps would deliver a message of hope or inspiration, then why not head over to battingthebreeze.com and let us know. Thank you for listening. Thank you.